Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And with me virtually today are my co-hosts, who happen to be some fellow saloners who either made a donation to the salon or who contributed to my pay-what-you-can audiobook project, both of which uh, will help offset some of the monthly expenses here in the salon. And these fine souls are David V., Jesper J., Bradley M., and uh, Frank N. And for what it's worth, Frank, I, uh, I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So uh, thanks for the encouragement, and uh, thank you one and all for your support of these podcasts. Now, today we're going to listen to another one of the Planque Norte lectures that were presented at last year's Burning Man Festival. And it's a talk that I've been wanting to hear ever since I first learned that it was scheduled. The speaker is Dr. Roland Griffiths of Johns Hopkins Medical, and his is a name that I'm sure you're already familiar with. But for any of our fellow saloners who aren't already familiar with Dr. Griffiths' work, all you have to do is conduct a quick internet search, and you'll soon discover that he is one of the preeminent researchers in his field. And as you'll hear shortly, Dr. Griffiths is, uh, well, more or less the front man for what I think is uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, groups of uh, professionals that are currently conducting research into psychedelic consciousness. And for our deep meditators here in the salon, I think that you're going to be uh, really interested in the research uh, he talks about here in a bit that his team is conducting in regards to the intersection of meditation and psychedelics. So uh, let's travel back to last year's Burning Man Festival and find a seat in the big Palenque Norte tent where Pez is about to introduce Dr. Roland Griffiths. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Roland Griffiths. Uh, Dr. Roland Griffiths is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neurosciences at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. His principal research focus in both clinical and preclinical laboratories has been on the behavioral and subjective effects of mood-altering drugs. His research has been largely supported by grants from the National Institute on Health, and he is an author of over 300 journal articles and book chapters. He has been a consultant to the National Institute of Health and to numerous pharmaceutical companies in the development of new psychotropic drugs. He is also currently a member of the Expert Advisory Panel on Drug Dependence for the World Health Organization. He has an interest in meditation and is the lead investigator of the Psilocybin Research Initiative at John Hopkins, which includes studies of psilocybin occasioned mystical experience in healthy volunteers and cancer patients and a pilot study of psilocybin-facilitated smoking cessation. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Griffiths. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, how many of you were here for the researchers' uh, uh, discussion earlier at 4? So, okay. So um, I apologize then if I cover some of the same material, but I think there are enough new people that I will. Um, so, uh, so it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, as I said er- earlier, this is my uh, first visit to Burning Man. And... <laughs> And, and as I was reflecting on the experience last night, uh, uh, the word that came up to me is uh, ineffable, which is a word that we use to describe the primary mystical experience. That's one of the qualities of that. And, and I just, uh, it kind of bemused me to think of uh, all the reading I had done, the survival guide and looking at the videos and uh, trying to imagine what it would be like to be on the playa at night or as the dust falls, you know? Well, (laughs) it's something you have to experience, right? Uh, So it's pretty amazing, pretty special. And um, I'm I'm really grateful um, for the uh, Palente Norte uh, crew for putting together this opportunity to speak. Um, So I'm going to talk about uh, the psilocybin research project at uh, Johns Hopkins. And um, I think what I'm going to do is 
is very briefly tell you uh, some of the domains of, of what we're doing right now, because we're doing uh, quite a few studies, and then um, try, try to feel in to uh, what it is we should spend time with in this 45 minutes or so that I have with you. Um, so we initiated our work with, uh, I'm, so I'm a psychopharmacologist, uh, professor in psychiatry and neuroscience, at Hopkins, and I've been doing psychopharmacology research for uh, 40 plus years. And about um, 18 years ago, I took up a meditation practice that really um, transformed the way I uh, looked at the world, some of the questions I was asking, raising all kinds of questions for me about the nature of spiritual unfoldment, spiritual experience. Uh, got me actually questioning what I was doing at Hopkins as a drug abuse pharmacologist uh, looking at yet another new molecular entity for its abuse potential and um, until I uh, became reacquainted with the older literature from the 60s that suggested that the classic serotonergic hallucinogens could occasion remarkable experiences uh, that look like uh, primary mystical experiences. And that uh, so spoke to me that we developed a protocol around uh, assessing that as well as being able just to do some routine clinical pharmacology. The thought in undertaking that study uh, was one of, uh, for me, mostly uh, intellectual, spiritual curiosity. I didn't have a, an ax to grind, if you will, uh, uh, it, I wasn't being led into the research through personal experience but or the personal experience that was organizational and meaningful to me was experience out of meditation. Uh, um, and so I felt like I was uh, kind of a neutral uh, party uh, coming in and, and, uh, and uh, proposing a study with psilocybin. We actually initially um, uh, didn't know at all that we could get approval for the protocol. This was 1999. Uh, uh, studies of this sort hadn't been approved, particularly in volunteers with no histories of ex prior exposure to classic hallucinogens. Those kinds of studies hadn't been conducted for over three decades. Um, and so we thought that there was a good chance that the regulatory hurdles, FDA and DEA and our IRB would just be insurmountable. Turned out that they weren't and, uh, and we got approved and um, we, can, we published our first study in 2006 and now have published a series of studies in, uh, in healthy volunteers and some survey studies. Um, and what came, uh, was part of the topic of the researchers symposium is, you know, the uh, the um, landscape has changed remarkably for doing scientific research now with the classic hallucinogens. Our laboratory has generated uh, quite a bit of safety data. We've, we've treated um, in studies uh, over 190 people. Uh, this is psilocybin, over 460 sessions. So we, we've developed quite a bit of experience with it in, in our controlled laboratory situations. And there are now a number of other academic institutions that have come online with approved protocols. So, um, so the train seems to be pulling out of the station. We've shown that we can do this research safely, and, uh, and we're interested in exploring any number of levels scientifically of unpacking the phenomenology, the behavioral attitudinal changes that occur, as well as uh, looking for potential therapeutic applications. So we've completed two major studies in, well, three now, uh, two major studies in healthy volunteers um, that were organized, or the, the most interesting findings from those studies uh, concerned uh, this primary mystical experience, the transcendent experience. And I, and I think I'm going to talk some about that. We've done a couple of survey studies uh, one on transcendent experiences, one on so-called bad trips, difficult or challenging experiences. We're 
just finishing up a study in beginning meditators, and we have a study planned in long-term meditators, and we think that there's an intersection between psilocybin and meditation, and I'll discuss that a little bit. And it fits very well with George Greer's last talk. Uh, he was speaking on uh, being aware of awareness, and that's it's one of those kind of self-reflective uh, um, uh, behaviors uh, that uh, get to the core, I think, of what the spiritual path is and what opens up with under appropriate set and setting conditions with the serotonergic hallucinogens. Um, but we're also running uh, some other kinds of studies. So we do have uh, a, a study in distressed cancer patients, psychologically distressed cancer patients who are anxious or depressed, secondary to the cancer diagnosis. Uh, Gabby from NYU um, made a presentation on that yesterday. And, um, and Alicia talked about, Alicia Danforth in the researcher seminar talked some about that. So I, I think I'm not going to go into detail about that work, although that's ongoing. Maybe I'll just put a plug in for uh, recruitment into that study. We also have a really fascinating study ongoing. Uh, it's a pilot study uh, um, looking at psilocybin for treatment in the addictions. And in this case, the target that we've picked is cigarette smoking among people who are chronic smokers and who have failed multiple times to quit, and we have very provocative and interesting data with that, and that plays off of observations made in the 50s and 60s, particularly with LSD and alcoholism. Um, but uh, I think I'm not going to uh, speak uh, so much about that. Um, so uh, here, here's my thought, time, time allowing. I'm going to start with the uh, mystical experience. And, uh, and the nature of the transcendent experience. Um, I'll review some of our older data, tell you about some of our ongoing studies, um, and then talk a little bit about the meditation studies that we're doing that I think are, you know, fit very, very well with that. And, um, and then if time allows, I'd actually like to talk about the, uh, the uh, dark side of uh, the serotonergic hallucinogens and, and talk to you about our, our uh, challenging experience survey study because there, yeah, there are warnings within that. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this unfolds. And then um, I'm told they'll let me know when we have about 10 minutes for Q&A at the end. So, um, so with respect to the mystical experience, um, uh, you know, of course, you're familiar with this. Uh, Psilocybin is a naturally occurring tryptamine alkaloid. It's the uh, principal psychoactive component of the psilocybe genus of mushrooms. Mushrooms have been used in various cultures uh, within structured manners, divinatory or healing uh, manners, um, for thousands of years. Um, so we have anthropological support for the use of psilocybin under these kinds of conditions. Our initial study um, was one in which we recruited in healthy volunteers with no prior history of, uh, of serotonergic hallucinogen exposure and, and offered them uh, seven setting conditions uh, that we thought would maximize the possibility of a transformative kind of experience. And this is really based on the types of set and settings that had been uh, explored and developed in the 1950s and uh, 60s. So why did we pick hallucinogen-naive individuals? Um, you know, a couple reasons. Uh, one is that those individuals uh, wouldn't bring in the uh, bias of, of uh, their prior experience. Uh, we, we arguably could ac actually give a placebo or a positive control drug there, and, and they may not know, uh, you know what's psilocybin and what's not. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and we thought uh, also it was the right way to do this 
to find out what the base rate would be of adverse experience or transcendent experience. If you open this up to uh, hallucinogen uh, experienced individuals, you're going to have a, a big selection bias. You're not going to find people who had one terrible experience and never took it again. So it seemed like a, a fair way to go about it. And um, our initial um, study in healthy volunteers, well, we ran a couple of studies. Uh, one was using methylphenidate or Ritalin as a positive control, a high dose of Ritalin. So it's psychoactive, it's stimulant, uh, and... Um, and that was the, the, the best we could actually do. We, we thought about all kinds of other uh, controls. I'm not going to go into the, the blinding procedures, but we bent over backwards to blind people to what it is that they would experience on any given session. They knew that they would experience psilocybin. They thought they could re receive, I think, 13 other compounds at various doses. So they, they didn't quite know what was going to come at them uh, from what what direction, um, and and that's that was important in terms of controlling expectancy, so that you don't have everyone going in with strong preconceived notions of what the experience should be, and again that was one of the reasons we took the hallucinogen naive people. So uh, we had, and and then we also subsequently ran a dose effect study. So after we did a methylphenidate comparison with a high dose of psilocybin, I, I, should, I should mention that. So our, our high dose of psilocybin is 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. And so that's um, equivalent to uh, five grams of dried mushrooms, of normal dried mushrooms. Mushrooms can vary a lot in potency, but that's, that's normative. So we're giving a really high dose. People are, are thoroughly prepared before these sessions. They have uh, eight hours of preparation time with uh, the monitors or guides who are going to be with them throughout the session. And uh, during that time, we're uh, reviewing life history, trying to understand life uh, struggles and, uh, and other aspects that, that could come up during a psilocybin session. And, it, and ideally, those are the conditions under which a volunteer could be maximally supportive. We have two guides or, or uh, monitors present throughout the session. Um, the, the term guide is a little bit misleading because this is not a guided experience. We, um, we have people uh, lay prone on a, on a couch. Uh, they have eye shades. Uh, and headphones through which they're listening to a program of uh, largely classical uh, music. We're asking them to turn their attention inward on their inner experience. So this is an inward-bound experience. And the bottom line uh, from this, of course, we got the expected psilocybin effects. The, the second study was a dose-effect study where we looked at a series of graded doses of psilocybin and placebo, uh, and, we, and we manipulated order of uh, dosing to get some information about whether there's some special risk to exposing people to a high dose for the first session. Um, and, you know, we got the expected effects of uh, serotonergic hallucinogens. So there were perceptual changes, auditory changes, visual changes, emotional reactivity, um, uh, some thinking changes. But the, uh, the thing that was of most personal interest to me at the time and the thing that I think is most um, important in terms of the implications of where this research could go is that the majority of these volunteers had what we would classify as a full-blown primary mystical experience. Now, um, you know, what's that? Uh, it sounds unlikely that um, we could measure that, doesn't it? Uh, but it turns out that the, that the folks in the psychology of religion have been working on this problem for uh, decades. And um, uh, William James, back just at around 1900, in Varieties of Religious Experience, actually started to describe 
the elements of the primary mystical experience. And then these have been developed and uh, there have been psychometric measures that have been developed uh, over the years to assess these kinds of um, effects. Uh, and so, so we were able to use some validated psychometric instruments as well as instrument, a couple of instruments that Walter Pankey had used for the Good Friday experiment back in the early 60s in which he gave psilocybin to seminary students. And, and, the, and, the, and the interesting piece of this was that um, the majority of these hallucinogen-naive volunteers had full-blown mystical experiences. Um, uh, as rated by questionnaires immediately after experience, the experience. So that, that was interesting. But even more interesting than that is that on follow-up, these experiences continue to be rated as extraordinarily salient, salient, personally meaningful, and spiritually significant. And so um, when we initiated these studies, it wouldn't have occurred to me to develop a scale that would rate the meaningfulness of this experience you know, in terms of, of some of the most meaningful of your life. But in fact, that's what those are the reports that we started getting back from people. People, you know, talk to people after sessions and at follow up. They say, "Wow, it was that was really amazing. That was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life." And I'd say, "Well, so you know, what what does that mean?" Thinking maybe they haven't had very many interesting life experiences. Um, but uh, they, yeah, they'd say no. This is you know like uh, the birth of my firstborn child or the death of my father who just recently passed away. It's a uh, a very seminal experience that I will never forget. So um, so that, you know that was that re- that was really exciting uh, that that kind of effect can occur it can occur reliably replicably in a dose dependent fashion in people with no history of hallucinogen exposure and many of our initial volunteers really you know hadn't even read very much of the literature on psilocybin so they they wouldn't have even thought to know very deeply about these experiences and yet they were ticking off <coughs> all the qualities of the primary mystical experience. So what are those? Um, so the, the primary mystical experience is defined by uh, endorsement of, of six factors. So one is unity. It's a core feature. And it's the interconnectedness of all people, of all things. Uh, sometimes experienced as... Uh, pure consciousness or pure awareness. It can be either extrovertive or introvertive, but there's a sense of the connectedness of everything. We're all in this together, right? Um, There's a a sense of sacredness or reverence that accompanies that experience. So this is a deeply moving experience that, that, uh, that even people who don't have a religious or, or strongly spiritual orientation will use the word spiritual or sacred or an experience deserving reverence. Um, there's a noetic quality to the experience. And that is the experience is said to be more real and felt to be more real and more true than everyday waking consciousness. So there's an authority that comes through this experience uh, that, that says this is important and I'm going to remember this and I'm going to remember this going forward. And I think it's, it's that quality, perhaps, that's so important to the longevity of this experience. I mean, we've gone out past a, past a year in terms of follow-up and the, the recall and the attributions in terms of positive changes in mood and behavior and, uh, and attitudes uh, is st- absolutely stable. Uh, deeply felt positive mood accompanies this experience, very often experienced as a heart opening, love, could be gentleness, 
gratitude. Uh, transcendence of time and space. So uh, time collapses into the present moment. The past and the future are irrelevant. It's all about what's happening right now. And space becomes unbelievably vast, endless. And then finally, there's this paradoxicality and ineffability, this sense. So, I, so at this point, I've gone into the session room uh, hundreds and hundreds of times to sit down with people after a session. And so the, one of the probe questions that I'll always ask, you know, is, um, you know, well, so how, how was it? And it's not infrequent that, that uh, people will just shake their head and they say, you know, I can't possibly even tell you. It's indescribable. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's check mark one in ineffability. Let's see, let's see where it goes from there. Um, so, uh, as I said, the remarkable features are in, in these studies, about 70% of people were saying that these experiences are among the most personally meaningful and spiritually significant of their lives. Um, we had recruited in, in our initial cohort, people who had interest in spirituality and even among that cohort that was prime for spirituality 30% said it was the single most spiritually significant experience of their life volunteers are making all kinds of attributions about changes in attitudes moods and behavior now now I'm I'm going way past the session I'm going to 2 months or to 14 months follow up and people are endorsing like attitudinal changes like uh, having more personal integration, there's more meaning, enthusiasm, patience, optimism, authenticity, self-confidence, mood changes, increased love, open-heartedness, joy, inner peace, uh, social effects, uh, more sensitive or perceptive, compassionate, tolerant, increased positive relationship, increased uh, need for service to others. So these are, um, are powerful effects. They occur dose-dependently. They occur under conditions where people are as deeply blinded to drug condition as we, as we can do. So I'm, as a psychopharmacologist, absolutely convinced about their reliability, and that's, that's what we have. We know we can, we can uh, occasion these kinds of experiences. Um, in their own words, so we had them. Uh, um, oh, oh, the the nature of these experiences uh, have to do. Uh, let's see, it, the meaningfulness and spiritual significance attributed to the experience at at over a year later correlated really highly with uh, the mystical experience score immediately after the session. So the the scale that these people in religious in uh, psychology of religion developed and that scale incidentally had never been given to people after uh, a, a classic hallucinogen um, but that scale is picking up something that predicts what happens 14 months later but it's that score on that scale that uh, predicts how spiritually significant they'll say it was at 14 months. It's not the magnitude of effect. So independently of the magnitude of psilocybin effect, the intensity of effect, that's, that's not it. There's almost a zero correlation. So it's, it's this constellation of these factors that uh, define the mystical experience. Um, we also interviewed families, friends, uh, co-workers, uh, and asked and did uh, telephone interviews with them, probing many of these same dimensions that people were claiming to have made changes on. And that, and that essentially validated the volunteers' uh, kinds of claims. So the family member, friends, coworkers uh, were also saying that they were making changes along the lines that they said they were. They're more open, relaxed, sensitive, less depressed. I'm just going to read just a couple of uh, quotes. This is just out of the 14-month follow-up. They're asked, uh, so what was meaningful about this experience? So here's 
There's one volunteer who says, the part that uh, continues to stick out for me was the knowing, seeing, and experiencing with every sense and fiber of my being that all things are connected. Here's another one. The sense that all is one. I experience the essence of the universe, the knowing that God asks nothing of us except to receive love. And um, some, some of these descriptions were theistic. Some people would put their experience in, in terms of uh, encountering uh, God or God of their understanding. Uh, other descriptions are totally non-theistic. Uh, and, there, and there are some people uh, who, um, who will not describe it, uh, will not use, endorse the word spiritual uh, in any sense to describe the experience, but they'll yet say it's among the most meaningful experiences of their lives. I think this is partly semantics, and it, and it really uh, deserves uh, unpacking. So one of the, one of the things that, that we did um, after uh, running the first two studies is, uh, is we did an analysis of, um, of uh, personality. We had done some pre-post personality uh, inventories and what the question was, does psilocybin change personality? Um, now, this is, a, this is an interesting question for personality psychologists because personality is really thought to be a very stable characteristic of individuals. And, and by the time you reach early 20s, uh, personality doesn't change. There, it's, there's, uh, there are goal standards for assessment of personality they're measured uh, in uh, five different factors, neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness. Everyone has their own profile, and the thought is that profile is pretty stable across the lifetime. So what does psilocybin do to personality? Well, the interesting thing is it does something, and it's in those individuals who had a full mystical experience, and what we're seeing there is an increase in the personality domain of openness. Um, so that's uh, robust, uh, and it's unexpected insofar as I don't know of any single manipulation that's been done in the area of personality, particularly something that occurs over a six-hour period that, cha that changes personality uh, later. And openness is interesting because it's... Um, it encompasses aesthetic appreciation and sensitivity, imagination, and fantasy, as well as a broad-minded tolerance of other viewpoints and values. Kind of sounds like Burning Man, doesn't it? Uh, openness is fundamental to creativity, and it predicts creativity in a wide range of domains, in the arts, in the sciences, as well as the uh, humanities. So... Um, so we went on and, and did uh, uh, a survey study um, asking uh, people to complete uh, a very detailed survey about the most meaningful experience that they ever had on psilocybin. And we think in this first study we had about 1,600 people. Um, and uh, and that, that study essentially validated or uh, confirmed the kinds of observations we are seeing in the laboratory, uh, that these experiences, remember, we're selecting this. We're asking people to complete the questionnaire and the set of questions on the basis of a deeply meaningful experience after taking psilocybin. Um, but about 50% of the people uh, reported that it was in the top five or single most spiritually significant experience of their life. Uh, so that compares, um, uh, it's, a, uh, it's just slightly lower than what we get in the laboratory. In the laboratory, we get 60 to 70% saying that. Um, but remember, these people are selecting the single uh, most uh, spiritually significant, or the single most meaningful experience. Top 60% uh, 60, uh, 60 said it was in the top five most uh, spiritually significant experiences. I'm, uh, 
I'm, I'm getting a timing flash going off in the, in the back here, so I'm going to uh, collapse some of these comments. One of the things that we did with the survey data that's really useful, and it's the way science proceeds, is when you have 1,600 people, then you can do um, some psychometric studies. And so we did a, a factor analysis of the, uh, of the mystical experience and, um, and have found that the mystical experience, at least after psilocybin, falls into four main factors. But there's a, the main factor of uh, unity, noetic quality, sacredness, and then there's a positive mood factor, transcendence of time and space factor, and an ineffability factor. So um, I, w I want to talk a little bit about the meditation studies. Uh, uh, they're near and dear to my heart because that's the path into which I got involved in this research. Um, so we have just recently completed one study in 75 people who initiated a meditation practice. They had opportunity for uh, uh, one or two psilocybin experiences, and we're looking at that um, uh, intersection uh, between uh, psilocybin and meditation. So why um, why is it that that we're interested in this uh, in this intersection? Um, so there there are a couple of observations from the um, uh, from the literature that are provocative. Uh, uh, both a study with uh, psilocybin and a study of meditation show that both of those manipulations decrease something called activity in the default mode network. And these, these are brain areas uh, that are responsible for self-referential processing. It's kind of self-reflective uh, processing. And so meditation can shut that down psilocybin apparently can shut that down and that's what George Greer who was talking immediately before me uh, was emphasizing this is all about be here now and so, so they seem to be convergent in that uh, effect um, we think of psilocybin and meditation as actually being complementary uh, processes so if you think about it um, psilocybin is a pharmacological tool that helps people recognize uh, how it feels to embody the present moment, right? And that's exactly the same of meditation. So it's about bringing yourself into the present moment. Psilocybin allows people to dispassionately observe and let go of pain, fear, and discomfort if given under uh, supportive set and setting conditions. That's exactly what meditation is about. If you've ever done a, uh, a meditation retreat, you run into pl plenty of uh, um, uh, fear, pain, and discomfort. Psilocybin transforms um, a conventional sense of self, that is, uh, the ego. Um, a strong message that comes out of a psilocybin experience is that you are not your mind. And that's exactly what happens with meditation. I mean, all the, the Buddhist meditations are aimed at deconstructing self. Um, psilocybin helps people recognize uh, that mind is capable of revealing knowledge not readily accessible in everyday waking consciousness. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot more going on here than uh, normal waking consciousness uh, gives us a clue of. And that's uh, identically true of, um, of, uh, of meditation. And finally, uh, psilocybin can give you this authoritative uh, sense of the interconnectedness of all people and all things. And again, that's what comes out of uh, deep uh, meditation experiences. We're following this up, the uh, novice meditation study with a study in long-term meditators. And I think this is particularly interesting. What, we're gonna, what our goal is to recruit people with decades of experience of intense meditation practice, ideally daily, experience, or daily meditation experience, lots of retreat experience, deep 
contemplative insights and practice. And then the question for for us and for them actually is when we drop psilocybin into into their worldview. How, how do they interpret this? What what all the language and the contemplation that they've developed over decades and decades of practice? You know, can that give us unique insights into the nature of mind? And and so it's it's really interesting, exciting study. We're combining it with brain imaging, so we're going to be doing pre-post brain imaging to see if we can one document uh, the uh, continuance of some of these uh, uh, kind of experiences where where what brain networks are altered, um, and then two, uh, we're going to give a, a lower dose of psilocybin to people in the scanner, and that's that that'll that will be interesting. Um, but uh, th- these are long-term meditators and, and have them then uh, do a series of meditations. And right now we're thinking about Buddhist meditators who, who are very familiar with breath meditation, with loving-kindness, and with an open awareness meditation. And so the question there is, so what the heck happens when you drop to the brain, when you drop psilocybin in? to people with those kinds of uh, histories. Um, let's see, so I, I, I got the five-minute flash about five minutes ago. So, so what that means is I won't proceed to tell you about the, uh, the bad trip survey, uh, other than I guess I want to just give the bottom line. Uh, you know, these compounds um, deserve a lot of respect. And uh, and we screen participants very tightly. We're in a major medical institution. It's going to be risk averse, and if this research is going to go forward, you know we've really got to minimize the opportunity for uh, difficult experiences. Um, and we've done that, and we've done that successfully. But the but the adverse uh, or the um, bad trip survey, if you'll allow me to. to uh, I'll, I'll call it the challenging experience survey. Uh, d- did reveal that there, you know, two to three percent of people have experiences uh, that are persisting um, years later that they've sought out psychiatric uh, support for, uh, and that they attribute uh, uh, the adverse changes in mental state to a, a single psilocybin experience so you know we're just beginning to understand the nature of how psilocybin affects consciousness consciousness is such a (laughs) it's such a mystery to uh certainly to neuroscience and uh and we just have you know a kindergarten uh level of understanding about really what's uh what's going on there um, so it's with a lot of humility that we need to undertake these studies. But um, for me, the most moving piece of it is this awakening, it's, you know, sometimes called the mystical experience. But it's the self-awareness and the sense uh, that we're all in this together. We're connected in a matrix, however you you know you want to language that or experience that you know religiously or materially or from an environmental uh, standpoint but we are in this together and there's something deeply precious about that recognition and it's going to be very important to the survival of humankind that we get that message and uh, and then move forward with the implications uh, wisely. So, thank you. We have a few minutes for questions here. Uh, Hello. In the laboratory setting, did you find any adverse effects? Say it again. In the laboratory setting, did you find any adverse yeah, th- effects? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, 
So yes, we did, and that's uh, important and instructive. So in spite of the fact that we screen people uh, very, very carefully, uh, and we have all this preparation, kind of optimizing, or we think we're optimizing set and setting, 33% of our volunteers uh, reported that the exp- the ex- at least some portion of the experience was one of extreme fear or anxiety. So all this preparation doesn't negate that as a possibility. Now, what I can also say about the laboratory studies is that we have never had someone uh, within the healthy volunteer population who has reported that they have been adversely affected by the psilocybin session. There's some people who say it was horrific, they wouldn't want to do it again, but most of them value the experience. Not all of them. Some say, nah, not for me, thanks. But, but no one is saying that they're harmed, and I think that's, that's key and that's important, so we can do this. But even all the set and setting conditions that we can bring to bear, you know, a good 30% will have a, you know, difficult experiences. Some of those are really short-lived, you know, I mean, it could be 30 seconds of panic. Um, the ones, of course, that are most difficult are the, uh, the adverse experiences that stretch over hours. And that's actually one of the things that this adverse experience or the uh, challenging experience survey showed. It's the long uh, challenging experiences uh, that are, are least likely to be associated with meaning and persisting spiritual significance. In, in some occasions, people will have experiences of deep fear, short though, and that actually plays into the value of the experience. So that's, that, and that's, that's the objection to using the term bad trip because some of the bad trips turn out to be the most interesting portals to transcendence or to recognizing how the ego can clamp down and control the experience, and it's about letting go. Um, my question is this. How did you arrive at that dose level, and do you believe if the dose level was smaller that you wouldn't have the 2 to 3% of the bad trips? And uh, this, like, how did you determine that level? And would you ever have you ever done studies with more higher dose or a lower dose? Yeah. So we've done a dose effect study. We've given uh, 5, 10, 20, and 30 milligrams per 70 kilogram, and we get nice graded dose effects. It turns out that the 20 milligram dose is substantially less likely to be associated with. Uh, uh, challenging experiences, and so so there's a a steep uh, a steep increase of the, of the slope of the dose effect curve. This is across volunteers um, uh, from like twenty to uh, to thirty milligrams. Uh, the way we we pick that dose uh, part maybe principally. Uh, on the basis that uh, that's the dose that was given in the Good Friday experiment. They gave a flat 30 milligrams. We were giving 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms, which 70 kilograms is about 154 pounds. So, so a 200-pound person is going to get considerably, uh, a considerably higher absolute dose of psilocybin. We have not... You know, there's a lot of individual variability in terms of sensitivity to psilocybin. And so we need to, we need to figure that out. And whether their genetic determinants of that is going to be important and interesting and it's going to be important to working out uh, clinical studies and, and figuring out optimal dosing. So there are, for some people, 30 milligrams is, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a big experience, but it's not... Uh, you know, it's not a on your floor experience, and there's for some people twenty milligrams is is plenty high. Um, so I, we think the sweet spot in terms of the uh, clinical trials is someplace between twenty and thirty milligrams. Um, there's some preliminary data uh, that Michael Bogenschutz has uh, talked about uh, or has developed in uh, alcoholics. 
that suggest um, that there may be subgroups that are significantly less sensitive to psilocybin, and so there may be some value in going up higher, say to 40 um, milligrams per 70 kilogram. But this, you know, we're just beginning this, and there's so much to be worked out. So sort of a twofold question. Um, first of all, how did you verify that those people were hallucinogenically inexperienced? Like, are there tests for all the major hallucinogens? And second of all, do you think there was a selection bias in the people that you know only a certain type of person will be willing to come in and say, "Hey, I'm going to take like 30 milligrams of I'm sorry, milli, I think it's milligrams yeah. of psilocybin." Like, probably that person is going to expect to have a good time from it. Uh, let's see. So uh, there's no biochemical test. We do extensive interviews and, and uh, clinical observations with them and get to know these people really well. Um, I'm confident that uh, the majority of our people were hallucinogen naive. There may have been one, one or two that had some experience that didn't come out in interview. But uh, clinically, it's pretty persuasive. But all we can do is... Uh, uh, is ask them. Your second question was? Like, do you think that there was some selection oh, bias? Selection yeah. bias, right. Um, of course. I mean, so, you know, someone has to be interested and willing uh, to undertake the extensive preparation and, uh, and the, uh, make the large commitment of time. We didn't pay volunteers uh, to do this. So in, in some sense, we were already picking people who were really open. As a matter of fact, that's, that makes the openness of uh, personality domain even more interesting because these people tended to be high on openness. Uh, in, our, in our study in cigarette smokers and in our cancer study, we're not picking people with those kinds of biases. They still have to be open to having a psilocybin session, but we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're finding a much broader range of uh, demographics. For that, you know, bef before the next question, I, it just occurred to me, and I'm embarrassed that I really didn't make the the comment that I'm I'm just a figurehead for an incredibly talented research team at Hopkins, and uh, and and we have so so you know on on that team we have uh, Matt Johnson, uh, Bill Richards. Bill did research with these drugs back in the 1960s. Uh, Catherine McLean, Mary Casamano, Brian Richards, Albert Garcia Romeo, Maggie Kleindenst, uh, Bob Jesse, uh, Fred Barrett, and, and, and a, a whole bunch of people who are providing um, uh, auxiliary support. But these, these are professional level people who are making really important contributions and it's it's uh, definitely a, a team effort, and I just want to make sure that is said clearly. Oh, good question. So, um, so in our studies, we exclude people with either um, uh, immediate family history uh, or um, or a first degree relative of psychotic disorder, because we're we're going to be risk averse, but we're concerned about precipitating enduring psychiatric or psychotic process. You know, the literature on that is just simply not clear. Uh, you know, back in the 1960s, there are lots of case reports of, of uh, kids, usually, you know, teenagers, early 20s, taking LSD and subsequently being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Those, that's the age range and, uh, under which uh, schizophrenia is going to um, uh, emerge. Uh, and so whether or not the LSD precipitated that illness, um, whether they had pre-existing conditions, um, we don't know. But that would be something that you wouldn't want to wish on anyone because schizophrenia, psychotic, lifetime psychotic illness is terrible, just terrible. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, what I'd say is if it were, if they were coming into our study, we would exclude them. And, and, um, and if they were, uh, if they were uh, 60 years old, 
they're going to be beyond the likelihood of um, in any risk because uh, schizophrenia would have shown up, and, and there the risk would be very small. And uh, here will be our last question. One more. Oh. oh, so one last question, I guess. So my question is um, you spoke about preparing the uh, participants eight hours. Uh, what was the range of the time length of the experience itself? And was there any typical pattern to actual the content of the experience that they went through? Was there a, a pattern that with this large number of uh, participants you could, you could predict what people would be experiencing? Yes, yeah, so uh, the onset on average is, is when you do curves across people, is, looks relatively smooth. We're seeing onset at about 30 minutes, peak effects at two to three hours, tapering off over four to five hours. Most people at uh, six to eight hours are back to pretty well normative levels. Um, but there's a, a lot of individual differences there. Uh, so peak effects for some people are maximal uh, before an hour. Other people have seen peak effects as late as uh, five hours. Um, and and we, we don't understand that. We control as best we can uh, for having them have an empty stomach. We're giving pharmaceutical-grade psilocybin. They're drinking a set amount of water. They're coming in semi-fasted. So there are individual differences there that we don't understand. With respect to the phenomenology... Um, no, there's no, there's no characteristic uh, phenom uh, pattern of that phenomenology. I think one of the most interesting things to me was looking at these fear responses, so experiences of extreme fear emerging in the session. And, um, and, and that, for some people, can be at 30 minutes, they re have an extreme experience of fear, and it's back down, and, and they won't have fear again. Other people can end up having transcendent experiences for the first couple of hours and then all of a sudden move into a deeply fearful and collapsed state. And some people can spike multiple times. So it really uh, is important that the sitters and, and guides are alert and present and attentive throughout the session. Thank you so much, Roland. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Ah, I really wish that Myron Stoloroff was still alive so that I could talk with him about the research Dr. Griffiths just spoke about in regards to the uh, intersection of deep meditation and a state of psychedelic consciousness. You see, uh, Myron was very dedicated to daily meditation and would even attend multi-week meditation retreats. And as you know, Myron was also one of the first and primary psychedelic researchers in the U.S. During some of my conversations with Myron, we would uh, talk about the possibility of achieving a deep psychedelic state on the natch, without a chemical boost, that is, and uh, doing so th primarily through meditation. In fact, uh, that was actually a goal of Myron's. However, he also told me that while there were a few instances when he thought that he was getting close, the fact is that he never actually made it over the psychedelic threshold on the Natch. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the Johns Hopkins research will tell us, particularly since they're uh, including brain imaging in the protocol. That's really fascinating. Also, uh, one of the studies that uh, Roland just mentioned was the so-called bad trip survey. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you'll remember me talking about that survey and encouraging any saloner who had information to add to take the survey. In fact, I did so myself, and uh, maybe you did so too. If so, thank you very much. Also, uh, I think that it's important to uh, think about what Dr. Griffiths said about uh, perhaps instead of calling them bad trips, uh, we should be calling them challenging or difficult trips. I know from uh, personal experience, uh, both of my own and of some friends of mine, that whenever these really difficult experiences do occur, uh, particularly in an ayahuasca circle, 
Well, uh, ultimately, uh, these experiences uh, end up becoming among the most valuable in the lessons and insights that they provide. Go figure, huh? Well, uh, I've got a couple of other announcements about podcasts that I've been interviewed on recently, uh, along with uh, a couple interesting little news items, but the simple fact of the matter is that I'm just kind of worn out today, so uh, I'll save those until next time. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>